Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom design storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com. On any given evening, millions of Americans will sit down in a darkened theater with their popcorn and big soda and enjoy a motion picture. But what we see on the screen is really just the tip of the iceberg. Behind the scenes, there is an army of actors, writers, producers, technicians, and others. And there is a mountain of material, ranging from treatments and scripts to contracts and memos. While this might just seem like piles of paperwork, it is in these documents that the real story of motion pictures is told. The negotiations, the conflicts, the unrealized visions. I'm Kendall Phillips, and on this episode of Pop Life, we conclude our three-part series on the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences by examining its crucial work in preserving the materials of film history at the Margaret Herrick Library, home of the Academy's extensive research collection. Joining me is Matt Severson, director of the Margaret Herrick Library. Matt, welcome to Pop Life. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to have you. As we were talking before we started rolling, uh, I've had some history in the Herrick, so I'm a huge fan. I probably have a million questions. But I suppose, Matt, the first question we should start with is, who was Margaret Herrick? Great question. Uh, So Margaret Herrick, uh, to boil it down, Margaret Herrick was the very first librarian, the first official librarian for the Academy. Um, She was... At the time she started working at the Academy, she was married to uh, who would be one of our uh, early executive directors of of the Academy, Donald Gledhill. So she came in as his wife. She was uh, formerly a librarian in Yakima, Washington at the Yakima Public Library. So she had a library science background. And when she was at the offices at the Academy, she started kind of organizing things, started ordering books and other periodicals for our library, which existed roughly, you know, within a year of the Academy being formed. So we already were amassing things at the very beginning. And um, so she became the first official librarian. And then roughly, you know, during World War II, she and Donald split uh, Donald left the Academy and um, and Margaret stayed and eventually became the not only its first librarian, but in 1945 was offered the role of executive director at the Academy. And she stayed the executive director of the of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences through 19 to January of 1971. Wow. So, you know, she has kind of a very a storied career with the Academy. Um, Among her notable achievements are that she, in 1953, she pushed to have the Academy Awards ceremony uh, uh, put on a broadcast on TV in 1953. So she is really responsible, not only for the show being broadcast, but also really helping the Academy become like an independent organization that actually had some revenue as a result of the show being broadcast. So next time someone wants to know why we have these, you know, three hour Oscar telecasts, we can say it was Margaret Herrick's idea. And she you can, yes, you, you, you can celebrate, you can point fingers at Margaret Herrick, but she is really the, the, the person behind that, which is pretty extraordinary uh, if you think about it, especially, you know, 
as issues of gender and and all of that that is such a contemporary uh topic for discussion that in 1953 uh you know she was kind of the main person to broker that deal is pretty astounding uh, one of the many unsung heroes of the motion picture industry and in fact one of the things i think has been really important in this series you know talking to you talking to the folks at the film archive and the museum is how much work you all do to celebrate the unsung heroes, the folks whose name are maybe not on the marquee, but are the ones doing the work. So I'm curious, when did the Academy and kind of why did the Academy decide to start collecting all of this documentation? Why why did the Academy want a library in the first place? That's a great question. I don't know if I have the absolute answer for <laughs> sure. this, but what I have what I've learned over time is that around the time that the Academy was being formed, the, the Academy started off uh, with like two or three offices in the Roosevelt Hotel. And at the Roosevelt Hotel, obviously there were brochures and other magazines and periodicals, probably relating to the, uh, to the film industry itself. But pretty soon, I think, because there were a lot of questions as the Academy was being formed, they felt that it would be good to have you know records of technical journals of other kind of current events that were going on in film at the time and as the membership kind of started growing as you can imagine you need to have reference materials on your own membership you need to know what's going on in the industry at the time and from what i understand is that uh, it wasn't like a formal library at the beginning. When I've heard it was more like a closet <laughs> at the Roosevelt Hotel in a room. And eventually it grew, it, you know, grew quite large. Um, you know, we didn't really have our first, what we would call a special collection, a collection from one entity until 1948, I believe. Um, and that was, uh, uh, it's uh, William Selig, who was an early pioneer in the mm -hmm. film industry. And um, in the in the mid-1940s, he gave his collection to the Academy. And that was also brokered by Margaret Herrick as well. We have photos of him and her looking at his collection together. And I think around that time, from like, say, the mid to late 40s through the 60s, Suddenly, you know, you have the early pioneers of, of, of the film industry who are starting to age out. They're starting to retire. And suddenly people like Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks and other, you know, the families of, Doug, of these people have this these collections and don't know what to do with them. They certainly don't want to, uh, you know, part with them or have them you know, uh, broken up in any way. So, you know, we, we are the, we end up, you know, becoming the place where people started donating their legacies, their, their paper legacies to. And um, I would say by the mid seventies, you know, we really started getting some major collections, you know, from Mary Pickford in the early eighties, we received the Alfred Hitchcock papers. So this is something that, you know, grew and grew and, um, you know, the development of the Margaret Herrick Library as it now stands, you know, we're in a beautiful building in Beverly Hills, but formerly the uh, library grew so much that it, it filled two whole floors of the executive offices at the 8949 Wilshire Building, which is our executive offices. And it was so large that the Academy started 
uh, having um, storage, started renting storage for some of these collections on the street on Wilshire Boulevard. So if chances were in the you know, mid-1980s, if you asked for something, it would not be uncommon <laughs> to see one of the library staff with a cart going down the street on Wilshire Boulevard and then having to cross that street to get back to 8949 to give you the materials that you're looking for. Um, luckily, in the late 80s, uh, the uh, water treatment plant for Beverly Hills, which was built around the time the Academy was founded in 1928, um, this building had gone into disrepair and our then executive director, Bruce Davis, was looking for an offsite location to house the library and kind of drove past this big church-like building and thought to himself, that might be a good place for the Margaret Herrick Library. And, and he was right. And we, uh, we worked with the city of Beverly Hills and opened our doors as it now stands in 1990, 1991. And it is a beautiful facility and much larger than a closet in the Roosevelt Hotel. So I think you've, yes, you've done well. Yes. You've, you've grown very nicely. I'm curious if I could just ask one more question about the acquisition. Are there ever any difficulties? Because I think about, you know, I know a number of studios have just sort of let their documentation, their archives out. And I know you all have some. USC has some. Other other institutions have the archives Whereas other studios, and I guess I'm thinking partly of Disney, has been uh, notoriously kind of kept all their stuff, kept their own internal archive. Are there ever any, any questions of like who should get certain documents, like who has the rights to these things? Or is it all fairly open game of whoever gets there first? I, you know, I, my thought on this, this is not an uncommon question. I, my, at the end of the day, I think what what all of us in the kind of the film library, you know, film librarians, we we somewhat stick together. It's a it's a smaller it's a smaller group of people mm. from around the world, and um, I think for most of us, it's not necessarily a matter of us getting there first, but it's a matter of knowing that the collection is being preserved. And you know, for my money, as long as those collections are being preserved and there are databases and there are librarians you know around the world that we can kind of connect with i think that's ultimately the most important part of this uh with the studios um you know it's it's changed a lot um you know Dis i think as you mentioned you know disney has done a really amazing job of preserving their materials and um they should really be applauded for realizing the historic and artistic um, importance of what they've created over their over their legacy, um, but a lot of studios, as you can imagine, when the studio system was kind of in free fall in the late '60s and early '70s, you know, a lot of the assets that these studios had, say photographs, you know, they would have these large key books for all of the movies that they produced. Uh, from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and these took up a lot of valuable space. And I would also say that the studios back in the 70s did not have a crystal ball as to what was getting. They had no idea that home video was around the corner. Right. So in the early, in the late 70s, uh, studios started um, kind of offloading their assets. And that's how we initially acquired the MGM collection, which is, you know, the, the initial MGM collection that was donated to us 
was all of the key books for MGM. And that resulted in about a million photographs, just that one collection alone. Wow. And then from what I understand around that time, also RKO, Paramount, um, Universal donated their negative collection, original negatives. And um, and then the, lar the single largest one was also by MGM, but this was when MGM had merged with United Artists. So it was the United Artists collection, which had also uh, picked up a number of small companies along the way. So Canon Films, American International Pictures, et cetera. Um, that collection, which was donated to us in the late, like 2008, I want to say, um, that collection alone, and, the, and what I'm just talking about the photographs in it, is about 5.4 million photographs alone. That that is that's more than you could fit in a closet in the Roosevelt Hotel. Which leads to the question, Matt: How do you keep, and more importantly, how do you preserve materials that go all the way back to the 1890s? Uh, great question. Uh, I would say that you know uh, we cater to students, scholars, uh, industry personnel, journalists, filmmakers, and the general public. Um, so really. Anyone with an interest in film and film history, uh, you know, there is there is, you know, enormous riches for for anyone to discover here. Um, we get a lot of uh, filmmakers, not only directors but also production designers. Um, there are, you know, recently, if you've seen the Coen Brothers film *Hail Caesar*, oh, yeah, which yeah. kind of focuses on the film industry in the 1930s and early 1940s, uh, a lot of the the production designers came here to do research on that era. Also, the recent film by David Fincher, *Mank*. Um, also, uh, the uh, I believe it was the production designer came here for that as well. We also have actors and actresses that come and use our resources when they're researching a film role um and i would if your uh, audience is familiar with the uh, podcast you must remember this uh that podcast a lot of the research for that podcast is done here at the library as well and an interest in full disclosure i should say i have also used it as in as my own little scribblings in film history have gone so i want to emphasize a point that i think folks should know is that the herrick is open to the public is that correct that is correct. We are we are open on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Uh, it's by appointment only. This uh, started during the pandemic, uh, but we realize that it's actually really helpful because it allows us to control the amount of people that are inside the library at any one time. It also kind of allows us to prepare for those uh, researchers that are coming in. So it's very easy. You can reserve a spot online by just going to our website on oscars.org. Um, I would also, uh, Kendall, just add to that, we are constantly reaching out to young uh, students and filmmakers because it's good to like let them know that our resources exist for them. And I think it's never too early to bring uh, young people that have an interest in film to our library and to work with them and help inspire them. No, an incredible resource just for everyone from people that are making films, that want to make films, or just love films. Now, I have to ask you, uh, Matt, have you had any starstruck moments? Anybody come in wanting to do research that you said, oh, my goodness, it's so-and-so? <laughs> uh, often. Uh, <laughs> yes. It ha I, I, I'll tell you my my favorite story about this. Mm. Uh, this, is a, this is a pretty good story. 
Um, a number of years ago, uh, this is pr probably in the early to maybe like around 2000, 2001, um, Drew Barrymore was coming in to do research on a role. And she came to, to the library on Wednesday when we're closed to the public. Oh. And she didn't realize that we were closed. And she was with uh, another um, colleague of hers. They were doing research. And unbeknownst to them, they turned around when they were in the lobby talking to our guard and a whole a whole array of paparazzi in numerous cars <laughs> were parked now on La Cienega following her. And she, you know, they just wanted to take photos of her for whatever reason. And so what I was called in to do was help get Drew out of the building. She had parked in the Beverly Hills tennis courts, which are next door to us. So the key was to just try to get her and her friend back to their car so the photographers weren't all over them. And at one point I offered to drive them into the tennis court and, and Drew said, no, I think we can just make a run for it. So they <laughs> ran across the lawn, um, kind of like in an area that the initially the photographers didn't see. And all of a sudden you had about 15 to 20 photographers running down the lawn, chasing her <laughs> with their with their cameras. And my favorite part of it, one of the cameramen lost his pants as he was chasing her and his pants came down to his ankles and he still was running after her. <laughs> I will expect the same treatment next time I'm at the Eric Library. <laughs> yes. uh, Absolutely. That's amazing. That is a fabulous story. So I'm always also interested in folks who working in archives or, or museum spaces. Is there any particular object, a document, a photograph, something that when you saw it, it kind of gave you goosebumps? Was there a, a moment where you said, oh, my goodness, I have this thing, this original thing? Oh, my God. It, I mean, I'll say there are far too, you know, it's almost too many to mention because there are you get goosebumps on a regular basis, you almost get, it's not that you get used to it, but it is something that when you come across something, you're like, oh my God, mm. um, here's an example. An example is, so we have the Catherine Hepburn collection and I I'm forgetting why I was going through this, but I was going through some of the photographs in her collection that were from Spencer Tracy. And he, this, it was a pack of just like, these weren't like, like studio photographs. There was like a, you know, a package that you would get from say the local film developer. And it's just one of those little envelopes, like four by five photographs. And it was a group of black and white photographs that Spencer Tracy had taken while he was shooting like the snows of Kilimanjaro or someplace that took him away from Los Angeles in the mid 1950s. And I have a feeling that, you know, not very many people had ever gone through these. I mean, they weren't taken out. They weren't in an album or anything. And I went through them and all of a sudden I realized that this was a packet that Spencer had mailed to Catherine Hepburn while he was away from her, as if to say, this is what I've been doing while I've been on, you know, the, the, the shooting this film. And on the backs of the photographs, it was Tracy on top of a 
kind of a hill or a mountain, or it looks like a mountain at the very least. Like he's at the top of some snowy peak and he's with his, he's holding his hand to his mouth as if he has like a bullhorn or he's like yelling out to someone. And on the back of the photographs, it's his writing. And it says, Kate in like long exaggerated letters uh, as if he's calling her name, which is pretty fantastic. And then also relating to both Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, a recent addition to the Catherine Hepburn papers was a page from Spencer Tracy's diary from 1941. And it said, I wish I knew the date offhand, but it says in his writing, uh, a list of things that he's doing that day. This one about be careful what you eat uh, this afternoon meeting with George Stevens and I'll be introduced and, and meeting Kate Hepburn at 9 a.m. or something like that. And how fantastic to know that that this date is kind of preserved somewhere of when the two of them met uh, is pretty special. Um, but, you know, Kendall, I have to tell you, like, that's like nothing like that's just a drop in the bucket <laughs> exactly. i mean there's any number of you know in the say any collection you know from Cary grant to mary pickford to gregory peck hattie mcdaniel collection um the saul bass collection i mean you know uh kendall i know you're a horror movie fan so in the saul bass collection you know in that collection we have a lot of the early saul bass renderings of his poster for the shining wow uh, many of which have never really been published before. And so, I mean, it's little things like that. It's generally, it's it's less of big things and it's more like small kind of like, oh my God, I can't believe we have this. Uh, Cary Grant's baby picture, which is about the size of your thumb. Uh, just his little, little head. I don't know <laughs> what it was used for, but, um, you know, it's things like that that really just kind of take you back. Um, you know, and it's, what I should also say is because a lot of the names that I'm listing here are kind of Hollywood royalty. Mm. You know, we we also are really seeking out to collect things on filmmakers that are more contemporary. I mean, as you can imagine, contemporary filmmakers are thinking, well, I'm still making movies. So why should I be donating to you guys? Well, you know, because, I'm, you know, we, there are stories of people losing their things in fires or, you know, other other things that can happen to these materials. When people donate to us, you know, they're not off limits. The The donors are, you know, able to kind of come in and work with their sure. with their materials. And in frank, frankly, we're we're easy storage. We're storage for them. And then we also help them organize their materials. Um and uh, so recent, recently we've gotten, you know, Catherine Bigelow's papers. Um, we just got the Russ Meyer collection, which wow. is kind of astounding. Not something necessarily that's going to, you know, has everyone excited, but, you know, the fact that we, you know, we're not being snobs about the things that we take, which we're really looking at film from a global perspective and, you know, collecting, you know, from around the world and for, you know, films that are high art and low art and independent and kind of, mar you know, representing marginal or, or mar you know, people, filmmakers that necessarily didn't have the forefront of the world's attention when they were making movies. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, great examples of that. Um, yeah, so that I hope that answers a little bit, uh, you know, some of the some of the things that treasures that we have. Um, 
No, it's, yeah. it's really amazing. And I, I do admire across all the Academy folks we've talked to in this series, the, the effort to preserve the full spectrum of film history, not just the $100 million film or the billion dollar film or the big filmmaker, but it is all those different voices. But I'm wondering, will that become more difficult now that so much of our record keeping is digital? So I imagine if... Uh, Tracy and Hepburn are going to meet now. It's going to be an Outlook calendar invite as opposed to something written in a diary. Is that something you all are struggling with, how you capture the, the massive amount of documents related to motion picture when so much of it are just digital files? So uh, in terms of, of digital files, we are, you know, we are taking them currently. Um, I, you know, I think we are just kind of growing because the, the way that we're preserving digital files is like an ever-changing conversation. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I I wish I had like a more concise, um, you know, answer to this. But we are we are working with with people and their digital files. But um, you know, it's uh, it's let's just say it's a challenge that we are up to the task for, and working with other academy staff to kind of make sure that we can preserve those those photos and memos and files that are online now. Well, I am confident that, that the history of film is in very good hands now. Matt, one thing that will undoubtedly never be part of the Academy's archive are the truly terrible questions we have in a little game we call the Fast Five. So, Matt, I'm going to ask you five either-or questions. I'm going to ask you to follow your heart and pick your best option, beginning with question number one. Uh, Matt, I believe you are a fan of the films of David Lynch. So if you had to spend the rest of your life inside one of Lynch's films, would it be 2006's Inland Empire or 1990's Wild at Heart? Oh, God. Uh, I'm going to go Inland Empire. I think that is a good choice because there are fewer tornadoes like in the end of Wild Heart. Question number two for you, Matt. I know that earlier in your life, you worked at a high-end movie poster gallery. So which of these rare and valuable posters would you most like to have hanging on your wall? Would it be an original one-sheet from the 1933 horror classic The Mummy or the international poster for 1927's Metropolis? Oh, I'm Metropolis all the way which was sold for $695,000 back in 2005. So I think you made a very wise choice, Matt. Question number three for you. Now, on a slightly more somber tone, a little less than a year ago, cinema lost one of its greatest voices when Jean-Luc Godard passed away. If you were to introduce his work to someone completely unfamiliar with it, would you choose 1960's Breathless or 1965's Alphaville? I'm going to say neither. I'm going to go a little off script and I'm going to say, I, I'm going to say two, two other ones. I would say uh, Vivre Sa Vie with his yeah. then wife, Anna Karina, and Perot Le Fou from 1965. Um, for people that aren't Godard uh, fans, I find that those two movies are the movies that I can kind of reel them in with. I think I, could, I completely trust you to do the reeling. So question number four <laughs> for you. I know the Herrick houses a stunning array of material from the history of motion pictures. Which of these fictional historical documents would you be most surprised to find in your files? Would it be an early treatment by Hitchcock for 1960s Psycho as a musical or <laughs> plans by Warner Brothers to set the story of Casablanca in Cincinnati? Oh, I'm, I'm going Psycho on that. 
In retrospect, I kind of want to see that movie. So finally, question number five for you, Matt. When they make the movie of your life, will it be a roller coaster action adventure starring Harrison Ford or a heartwarming comedy starring Tom Hanks? I think I got to go Harrison Ford on that. I like Raiders of the Lost Archive. I think it's uh, coming to a theater near you. So, Matt, the last question we always have for our guests is what is in your pop life? Is there anything you're binging, listening to, loving in pop culture these days? Uh, I, two, I guess two things. Um, I, I'm a big, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, dance music and techno music. So I really love the uh, band Sophie Tucker. Uh, I'm also a big fan of the, uh, <laughs> of the uh, British and Australian pop star Kylie Minogue. So she has a new album coming out. So I'm excited about that. Um, I'm also reading uh, the new the 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 book. Killers of the Flower Moon, which uh-huh. Scorsese is uh, has made into a movie and is premiering at Cannes. So I'm trying to finish that before the release of that film. I'm glad to see you have some things to keep you busy in addition to preserving the history of all <laughs> motion picture. Matt Saverson is the director of the Margaret Herrick Library. He's been our guest and amazing to get insights into all you do. And to our listeners, I'll say, as the orchestra starts playing me off, I want to thank all the great folks at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, especially Lydia Fong, for helping us put this three-part series together. And remember, when you want a behind-the-scenes look at the institutions shaping our popular culture, just tune in to Pop Life from WAER. I'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER, Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at waer.org. And don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes.